Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and now TikTok. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. And before we get started, let's just talk a little bit about our giveaway. Head over to bcthebeatles.com and you can enter our giveaway for a bunch of cool goodies. We've still got stuff left from the Cavern Club and Strawberry Field and Liverpool, as well as a bunch of other great Beatles swag. And it's really easy to enter. All you have to do is either give us your email address or rate us, review us, follow us. Lots of different ways to enter. So again, bcthebeatles.com, click on giveaway, or I think it's called monthly giveaway, and get into it. And remind me again, what's the deadline? It is going to be the 16th of December, I believe. So hopefully the prizes will get to you before the holidays. Okay, let's get to today's main event. Yeah, let's do it. We are so excited to welcome Paul Muldoon to the podcast to talk about his work on the Paul McCartney book, The Lyrics, 1956 to the Present, and the accompanying podcast. For those who aren't familiar with his work, Paul Muldoon has been described as the most significant English language poet born since the Second World War. He's published 14 full-length volumes of poetry, as well as many smaller collections, children's books, opera libretti, song lyrics, and radio and television scripts. He's won lots of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, holds 10 honorary doctorates, and is currently the sitting Ireland Professor of Poetry, a role akin to Poet Laureate for Ireland. He's taught at Oxford University, served as poetry editor for the New Yorker magazine, and is currently a professor at Princeton University. Wow. Um, Accomplishments. He has them all. Yes, yes, yes. Beatle fans probably know him best as the editor of Paul McCartney, The Lyrics, 1956 to Present, which came out in 2021. And that book was actually the result of five years of candid conversations that Paul Muldoon had with Paul McCartney about the circumstances surrounding the song's creation, the people and places that inspired them, and what Paul McCartney thinks of them today. So the commentaries are presented in alphabetical order in the book. And the reader kind of gets a reference guide to Paul McCartney's lyrics, as well as a narrative guide that gives unique insight into his life and career. And according to Paul Muldoon, he says, these commentaries are as close to an autobiography as we may ever come. His, Paul McCartney's, insights into his own artistic process confirm a notion at which we had but guessed that Paul McCartney is a major literary figure who draws upon and extends the long tradition of poetry in English. So the original hardback edition of the lyrics was a huge success two years ago. It won the 2022 British Book Award for Best Nonfiction Lifestyle Book and was named the 2021 Book of the Year for both Waterstones Bookstores in the UK and Barnes & Noble Bookstores in the US. The new paperback edition has been expanded, includes seven new commentaries for a total of 161 songs reviewed. But despite this increase in material, this new paperback volume is much more portable. For those of you who bought it two years ago, it's a beautiful book, but it actually weighs eight pounds. So this one can go in your backpack. You can bring it on the subway. So beyond this book, Paul Muldoon is also the narrator of a new companion podcast, which is absolutely fantastic, called Paul McCartney, A Life in Lyrics. 
Each episode focuses on a single song featured in Paul McCartney, The Lyrics, and we hear recordings of the candid conversations that Paul Muldoon had with Paul McCartney to create the book. There's also additional narration, music, and historical sound bites that really fill in those gaps and round out the songs in an interesting way that I know that I've really learned a lot from. A wonderful book, wonderful podcast, and we're so excited to have Paul Muldoon so to talk to us more about this. So welcome, Paul, to BC The Beatles. Hi, Paul. Hey, folks. How are you? We're doing great. Thank you so much for being on Because the Beatles. We loved this book when it came out two years ago. So we're so excited to have you on to talk about the making of the book, the paperback edition, and of course, the podcast too. So let's start at the beginning. How did you come to work with Paul McCartney? Well, it started in a rather odd way in the sense that it started with my going to the opera, an opera called Don Carlos by Verdi which is one of those interminable Italian operas. I think it might last for five hours. But in any case, I went, <laughs> I went one night with uh, Bob Weil, who is an editor at uh, Liverite. And I'd done a book for Liverite. Liverite was the guy who published The Wasteland, and I'd done an edition of The Wasteland for them. And we'd been talking for a while about maybe doing another book, and in the course of this evening at the opera, he started talking about uh, Paul McCartney. He'd already done a book of poems by Paul McCartney. He started talking about uh, the idea of a book of it, focusing on the lyrics with commentaries on them. And to cut a long story short, uh, by the time the night at the opera was over, I had kind of signed on for it. I think he was asking me, I'm not absolutely certain if he was. Anyway, it seemed to be that he was asking me if I would do it. So uh, we started from there and uh, a marriage was arranged, in other words, between myself and Paul McCartney. Was the first meeting to start working with the material? Actually, it was a meeting with his uh, brother-in-law, John Eastman, and Linda Eastman's brother, who was Paul McCartney's lawyer. He since passed on, I'm afraid, very interesting fella. And then uh, you know, I met Paul McCartney for lunch, basically, and uh, not exactly a blind date, but something along those lines. It seems like the two of you got on very well. You open your introductory statement in the book with a really funny anecdote about a phone call you received from him after the 2016 election. Well, one probably shouldn't build it up as been very funny, just in case it's not just to some people. But um, what happened was I was minding my own business one day and the phone rang. And uh, this guy, well, actually, it was Donald Trump, um, said to me, how would you like to come to Washington and be my poetry czar or something along those lines? And it was a very persuasive take on Donald Trump, I have to say. And of course, as he kept talking, it transpired that it was Paul McCartney. And one of the points I make in my introduction is, of course, that Paul McCartney, like many artists, actually, that I've met over the years, not all, but many, is a fabulous mimic. He's really good at doing versions of people. Never heard him do Jimmy Stewart, but uh, <laughs> a number of other people, including myself, which is kind of troubling, really. But of course, it stands him in very good stead as an artist, in the sense that he will still conjure up, say, um, Little Richard, 
you know, he will do his little Richard voice if he wants to uh, get into a particular mode. It's a not unreasonable way of, of actually psyching oneself up for a performance. Anyway, that was what happened vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump, Paul McCartney. He does love to do his Michael Jackson impression quite a lot. He does. Yes, he does. <laughs> and, you know, beyond the mimicry, can you talk a little bit more about the sense of humor and your working relationship with him while you were doing the book? We did get on and do get on quite well. It partly has, I think, largely has to do with our the fact that we are pretty much on the same page in terms of the sense of culture that we share. I was brought up, I'm younger than him, of course, uh, not that I want to make too much of that, but we were brought up in very similar ways. We listened to much the same music. We saw much the same television. Uh, of course, you know, television was really coming into its own for most people in the mid-1950s. And before television, of course, radio and the impact of radio on Paul McCartney and the Beatles in general is really not to be overstated. Then, of course, uh, books. And, and that, in fact, is not to be overstated. And uh, that's one of the aspects of the lyrics that I was very keen on foregrounding, actually, was the literary background to Paul McCartney and to some extent John Lennon, but certainly McCartney. As you'll know from uh, the book, one of the most important people in his life, and this is true of many writers, was a particular English teacher, and in this case, a man called Alan Durband, who, as it happens, had been himself been a student at Cambridge of uh, F.R. Leavis, who really was a, a major force in what's known in the US as the new criticism, in the UK as practical criticism. He's a guy I actually heard lecture, for example, in Queen's University, Belfast, in either the very late 60s, early 70s. So he was still lurking around. But he was a person who specialised in close readings, mm. mostly of poetry, but not exclusively. It was under the influence, in other words, of a student of the close reading that Paul McGartney was taught English at school. And one of the things we set out to do with this book was to do close readings of his lyrics. So we basically sat down and uh, worked our way through the song lyrics pretty much word by word as to what the import of that might be, what the significance of that phrase might be. In many cases, the what's happening um, in what I call the permafrost of a poem or a lyric way under the surface, so far under, in fact, that sometimes the person through whom it was written, they're not themselves absolutely conscious of what's happening because it really is all lodged, not only in the, um, the substratum of the poem or lyric, but in the subconscious of the person through whom it was written. So um, that's what we were setting out to do in this instance. Did you have a method to help the two of you get down to that permafrost layer? Well, I think what, I mean, there were no, quite a few occasions really when um, I would suggest something a little provocatively because what we were absolutely determined to do, and we sort of took a little oath each time we sat down, 
which had to do with um, trying not to tell stories that we'd heard before. You know, like, like most of us, when Paul McCartney is asked a question, he has an answer to it, right? If somebody asks you, you know, your first memory or what you did on your first day at school or your favorite book, you've kind of, you've got an answer to it. Mm -hmm. And of course, he has been asked uh, these questions more than, much more than most of us, mm -hmm. but like most of us has tended to give the same answer. Without making stuff up, what we were very keen to do was not to leave the room, as it were, without his saying something that he hadn't quite said before. Because otherwise, what's the point of doing it? Uh, I mean, his life is so well documented um, already that, uh, you know, one doesn't want to be just doing a rerun of that. It sounds a, little, a bit fanciful, but we we thought of it somewhat in terms of his sitting down with John Lennon, determined not to leave without having done something. And in fact, from what I recall, there may have been one occasion when they sat down to write a song when nothing came of it, but I'm not even sure of that. So we were very conscious of that kind of constraint, you know. Were the songs that you chose for the book planned out in advance or did they come up organically and then you put them in the right order in the book? Well, the order is an interesting one. Uh, I mean, we, we started out pretty much chronologically. Uh, that seemed to be, um, you know, in terms of getting through the songs, that seemed to be the way to do it. We've met, uh, I believe it was 25 times over a period of five years and on each of those occasions, I want to see if I can do the math here. We must have looked at four or five songs in a fairly focused way. So we did start out chronologically, but very early on, actually, I was very keen on the idea that the finished book, such as we imagined it, and we imagined it as being a fairly slim volume, actually, almost like a volume of poems with a, the text on the left side and then the commentary on the right-hand page as one looked at it, and uh, or maybe going on into the next page. But it struck me really um, that it was going to be much more effective and much more interesting if we did it chronologically. Um, we weren't setting out for him to write his autobiography, though it is necessarily autobiographical, partly because of a realish concern about, um, had we done it uh, chronologically, about the Beatles era perhaps seeming a bit lopsided and of it looking pretty much like when the term I use is the donkey and the python, you know, that there would be a huge bulge there of Beatles material, uh, despite the fact that he, you know, has continued with Wings and then in his solo career to be extremely productive. And the fact of the matter is that I think there's a risk, and I'm sure he'd be the first to agree with this, that, you know, people are just going to read the Beatles stuff. Um, so this is a way, actually, of um, making it much more of, to use a term that's not inappropriate, much more of a magical mystery tour, because you really don't know what's going to hit you as you turn the page. That's very important to me and to him, I think. You want to be surprised in life. That's my own belief, you know. Uh, I understand the concept of the trigger warning, but 
in this business, you know, we're not in the trigger warning business. We're in the business of surprising people and maybe even shocking them. Anyway, that's how the book uh, developed um, as we proceeded with it. And of course, as we proceeded with it, it turned into a much more, what would one say? But Well, something much more uh, ornate than we had imagined. Because as we worked on it, his um, team, as they were working on it, put, you know, discovered all sorts of uh, ephemera, as it's known, or they're known, bits and bobs, you know, song lyrics written on a paper bag or whatever, photographs. So those all became part of the document. And uh, before we knew it, it was a two-volume opus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. And, you know, it's funny that it was originally planned to be more of a slim volume because now we have that with the paperback version. Well, that's right. I mean, the paperback is wonderfully compact. Um, and I was a bit surprised, to be honest. I mean, I myself almost necessarily as someone who's most interested in poetry, I like the slim volume. And I don't like reading books that if I were I to fall asleep reading them would, might conceivably knock me out. <laughs> I don't like that in a book. So I'm kind of glad that it's manageable, you know? Yeah. And something I really like about both volumes or both versions, I should say, is, you know, you can read them cover to cover, but also I just like to open it up and then just whatever it lands on, just have a read. And it's, I always learn something new. Mm, totally. That's right. I mean, it's, um, it's serendipitous, um, you know, yeah, you, you, you could open it at random and as you say, and find something interesting. Um, I mean, that's what we were setting out to do. And I think even hardened Beatles fans and, you know, the word, we have to remind ourselves that the word fan means fanatic. Um, and I think even the fanatics have been pleasantly surprised to find uh, items that they, they, they didn't necessarily know about. I mean, I mean, some of them will know more than others, but it's one of the, the delights of having been involved in it, honestly, is that we were able to uncover some new material. Obviously, there are a lot of songs that are familiar to all of us, but some are pretty obscure. Were those the ones closest to Paul's heart or were they just favorites? He was like, yes, like we have to put old Siam Sir in the book. Um, well, we tried to include most of the songs that are generally ascribed to him, right? So, you know, the songs that on which he took the lead role, as it were, for example, in the Lennon-McCartney era, it's not that John Lennon wasn't involved. Of course he was in quite a few of them. But uh, the ones in which he took the lead, as it were. Then a few extra ones that we tipped in because, you know, in the music business in particular, and I suppose this is somewhat in the music business, one likes a little bonus track. Of course. Uh, so there are a few bonus tracks in there, you know. Now, when you decided which songs were going to go into your podcast, was that your choice specifically about ones you thought would be the best? No, it wasn't. Uh, no, it was not at all. In fact, I was shocked, if anything, when I discovered that we might be doing a podcast. Oh, really? I was. And the reason for that is very simple. Again, we, at least I, and I think he, had absolutely no idea that this would become a podcast. Because the way we did it was that we, um, of course, we recorded our conversations, but we recorded them 
specifically, explicitly, and as far as I understood it, exclusively for someone to come and transcribe them, which someone did. It was a little bit cavalier, to be honest, because, I mean, often the micro we had two microphones. We always had two mics because in case one of them packed it in. But the two mics were rather, um, what would one say, um, casually <laughs> uh, positioned with a view to capturing him because, you know, at the end of the day, I was not going to be involved in it at all. We were always setting out to focus on on him the idea was that I would edit what he said into the commentary, which is what happened. And because of that, the conversations were very focused in a certain sense, you know, a job to do, a job to be done, but also quite um, casual, unbuttoned, um, unguarded perhaps even in some respects. So when I heard that there was a thought of making it into a podcast, I was surprised because I really didn't think the quality would be good enough. But of course, uh, in this modern era, as you know, the technology is such now that one can take pretty much, you know, what would have been unbroadcastable 30 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe, and, um, you know, clean it up a bit. Um, I mean, possibly the CIA would have been able to do it 30 years ago or 50 years ago, but most of the rest of us know. So I think part of the choice had to do with uh, the conversations that probably were the ones that were most plausible from a technical point of view. I wasn't involved in choosing them at all. Yeah, and I guess there's there was the opportunity for some to add even extra material. Like in the Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, we heard a clip of what Admiral Halsey actually sounded like, so we could further augment the story. Well, that's right. I mean, the the uh, people who put this series together are extremely well versed in podcasting, and uh, so they were making it, as you know, a podcast experience. Uh, you see, I think in a strange way, had we known that it was going to be broadcast, we would have been much more circumspect in a good way. And we would probably have been much more, uh, well, he's pretty coherent. I think I would probably have been much more coherent. But the downside of that is actually, I think probably some of the material wouldn't, wouldn't actually have been uh, captured, as we say nowadays. Well, you didn't feel like you were performing for anybody. Well, that is right. Absolutely. And I think that comes across. And I think people like that. Yes. Uh, from what I understand. That, I definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. I think they feel it's quite, uh, what's the word? Casual. Off the cuff. Off the cuff. I mean, as I say, it's a combination of focused. It was definitely very focused, We, uh, but off the cuff also. And I, I think one of the things that comes across to me as a casual listener to them now is there is a sense of our having a bit of fun as we did it, which we certainly did. I mean, it was a hoot pretty much. That definitely comes across. Yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoy the sort of casual tone that you talk about. You know, I was listening to it in my car as you do podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I sort of just felt like you guys were like in the car with me and we're just talking like on a road trip or something. Cause it just felt very like you're sitting in the room and listening to these stories, you know? Yeah, I think that does come across, and that's it's quite attractive. You know, that's not something you want if you're listening to the six o'clock news, but uh, you know, <laughs> um, but it is something you want, I think, if you're listening to a podcast. 
Yeah. And it's so much easier in some ways to open up if you're having a conversation like that too, which I think comes across in the book and in, in what he says about these songs. Yeah, I think so. Good. I'm glad to hear it. What did you think, I mean, as, as a poet yourself and as a professor, how do you feel that these songs communicate something differently when you read them on the page as opposed to hearing them in the context of the song? Well, that's a very important point, actually, about this project, certainly the, the book end of it, which was our, you know, the project as we understood it. Along the way, we decided I was very keen on calling it the lyrics because I felt it was important that the book focus on those. We could have called it the songs. And while there is considerable discussion of musical aspects of the songs, the main focus is on the words and what they're doing. Now, it's a it's a strange business because, of course, it's very hard to put the music out of one's mind. And it's impossible to think of Eleanor Rigby, say, without thinking about the music. And they're not complete without the music in some very significant way. But our brief was nonetheless to focus on what would happen for the printed page. You know, there are many great songwriters who function pretty well on the page. I mean, I think of people like just a couple, um, you know, in no particular order, Tony Mitchell or um, Paul Simon or Leonard Cohen. You know, they stand up on the page for what it's worth. And that's a very important proviso because that's not what they have to do. They don't have to stand up on the page. That's what poems do. And these are not quite poems. You may read uh, the collected poems of Leonard Cohen, and they happen to be the collected lyrics of Leonard Cohen. The pressure per square inch, which is the term I use to try to understand this, is high enough for them to stand up on the page. Mm. Higher, in fact, than it is in the case of many bona fide, quote-unquote, conventional, quote-unquote, poems, uh, where the pressure per square inch isn't high enough at all. So um, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that it's not necessary for these pieces to function solely, merely on the page. In fact, that's almost by definition what they are not meant to do. But uh, in this case, that that was our focus. Now, what would you say to the people out there who, when they talk about Paul McCartney, especially when they talk about him in context of Paul and John, they look at John as the intellectual heavyweight and Paul as a lightweight. As far as Paul's the music, John was the lyric man, the poetry man. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't, I must say, I'd never, I'd never thought that that was how the cake was divided, as it were. And I certainly wouldn't think that now. And I don't think any, anyone else is going to be thinking that. I think Paul McCartney comes across here, has been very interested in, in uh, language mm-hmm. uh, as well as music. I think they were both interested in language and music. And we don't have to choose between them, um, which is a very important fact. We don't have to choose between them. And Paul McCartney would be the first to say this. In fact, he does say it 
what they had was something very remarkable. I mean, the combo was remarkable. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. They were very, um, each individually very talented in both words and music, as I say. But together, I mean, they were unbeatable, really. So that's how I would break it down. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, and I think a book like this goes a long way to dispel any of those those notions, which are out there, but are certainly fading with time. Yeah. Are they? Yeah. I'm not even familiar with those, to be honest. It's just not based in fact. Yeah, I don't see anyone would even have to get involved in those conversations. I mean, often, I mean, as a poet, I'm asked, well, what, who do you do you prefer? You know, do you think Shakespeare's better than John Donne or John Donne better than Shakespeare? Do you think um, Elizabeth Bishop is better than Marion Moore? Eh, I don't have to make that choice. Thank heavens we've got both of them. Yes, know? agreed. We do. And uh, Emily Dickinson and... You know, who's the best, Dickinson or Frost? Well, I don't need to make that choice. Uh, they're all doing very different things. You know, they just as a Gibson does a different thing from a Fender, they all have their particular functions right. and strengths. Right. Well, Paul, this has been so great. Our time is unfortunately running out, but we didn't want to end without asking you, do you have any favorite personal songs or lyrics in this book? <laughs> You know, honestly, every time I hear one, I think, oh, I think that's my favorite. Uh, Relatable. Uh, for the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, look, uh, you know, he, he, is, he is a remarkable artist and he continues to be a remarkable artist. I mean, I don't know if you've seen him uh, play in recent times, but. Yeah. I mean, he's un unbelievable, really. The recent songs are fabulous. Wing songs are fabulous. The best of the Beatles, fabulous. He's a very special person and a major force in our culture. For sure. You know? There's no getting around that. Definitely. You know? Yeah. I mean, in this podcast, I refer to myself as an apologist because <laughs> I just absolutely love everything he does. So. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he holds that down on the pod. <laughs> Yeah, it really does. So, you know, isn't it nice to be able to be uh, be upbeat about that and to, to cherish him and uh, and to come away from thinking about him and uh, what he does and what he's done, feeling better about Absolutely. going into the world, you know, which is rare enough right now. I love that. Yes, agreed. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. This was a wonderful conversation. This has been fascinating. Thank you so yes. much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, we're so happy. We're so happy. Good. Well, yes. thank you so much now. All the best. See you soon. Thank you. You too. Yep, you too. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Paul Muldoon for those fascinating insights into the book and podcast series. You can find both versions of Paul McCartney, A Life in Lyrics at Amazon and any other bookseller. And the 12 episode companion podcast is available wherever you're listening to us right now with new episodes currently dropping weekly. And thanks to you for listening to BC The Beatles. Next time, we'll be talking with Ken Womack, author of the fascinating new book, Living the Beatles Legend, The Untold Story of Mal Evans. Ken's a returning guest to the podcast, and he will be joined by another special guest, Mal's son, Gary Evans. 
So we're very excited about that. So excited. I know. Can't wait. And as always, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now and give us a rating and review so other Beatle Maniacs can find us. And as always, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And again, remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com too. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.